Hello and welcome back to the weekly Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and with me again is Simon Elliott, the Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. We're going to kick off this week as normal by looking at the market. It's been uh, not one of the best this week. No, I think that's right. I think markets are decidedly nervous at the moment and for, for good reason. Um, the second wave of the coronavirus is clearly impacting on Europe and, and elsewhere around the world. And we're also approaching, of course, the US presidential election. And uh, I think there is a lot of fear, not necessarily about the outcome, which obviously most people suspect is a Biden victory, but the uncertainty that might come, particularly if President Trump contests the result. But in terms of the, the indices uh, this week, the all share uh, is going to end slightly down. It's recovered towards the end of the week. Uh, and actually, the investment company sector will end uh, up, but only only slightly, probably up about 1% or so. But the sector average discount uh, is worth keeping an eye on. It has actually narrowed during the week. It probably started off about a 5%. It's narrowed into 4.4. And if you think actually one month ago, it was actually out at an 8.5% discount. It just shows that there has been some some tightening of discounts in the last month or so. Yeah, what do you think is the reason behind that? Is it just that some people are beginning to see some more bargains in the in the investment trust sector? What other explanation could there be? Because just over four percent discount is uh, it's getting pretty close back to the levels we were at the start of the year, is it not? It's getting closer. I mean, we started the year at about a one percent discount, which was an incredibly narrow range uh, from what we've seen historically. But you're right, that discount has has moved in quite a lot over the last month or so. I think it was a case that some discounts had widened out to such a level that it did attract value-orientated investors. I mean, it's always been one of the great areas of interest within the investment trust world that uh, it does play to contrarian investors. People are prepared to take a different view to the marketplace and take advantage of wide discounts. And I think there's definitely been an element of that. I think the UK in particular, those investment trusts specialising in, in the UK, had definitely got a bit beaten up uh, about a month or so ago. And, and despite um, the slightly bumpy news flow that we're seeing for the UK, I think people have taken a view that they're, they're prepared to pick up these things at wide discounts. Well, let's talk on about some of the announcements this week. Uh, we've got a mixed bag of uh, the usual fundraising, corporate activity and results announcements. Uh, let's start with Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth, ADIG. You can tell us which sector this is in. And uh, what have they been uh, talking about this week? Yeah, so Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth, it's uh, classified as a, a in the flexible investment subsector. It's announced a few things this week, actually. Um, it's one of these investment trusts that has quite expensive long-term uh, debentures on its balance sheet. And so the board has uh, bitten the bullet. They've decided to pay up to 45 million of the outstanding 60 million bonds. And they've got a coupon of 6.25% uh, and they don't mature till 2031. So still a few years to go. So they've decided to repurchase those, and that uh, will be at a cost of 1.4% to the NAV. But what it means is it takes the gearing down on the investment trust from 24%, which is obviously a little on the high side, to 6%. So that's one aspect of their announcement. The other is that they've had a strategic review, and that really reflects the fact that it actually it's had a pretty tough year. It has been derated. The discount has widened out and is currently on about a 23% discount. And I think this has meant that the board have had another look at this one and they decided that there's going to be a greater focus on private market investments. And a chap called Nalaka da Silva, who's uh, the head of private market solutions at Aberdeen Standard Investments, is going to take responsibility for asset allocations uh, as the portfolio manager. So there's a bit of a change there. They've also committed to their progressive dividend policy and uh, despite the fact that it's clearly been a difficult year for everybody in terms of uh, revenue received, um, they're still looking to, to not only maintain that dividend, but over the long term kind of push it on. Yes, I noticed that they've got a, quite a significant yield. I mean, they're 6% yield, I think, on a historic basis, which is uh, considerably higher than most of the others in the, in the sector, I would think. And I guess on the debt refinancing, there aren't that many left now of what people thought was a good idea at the time to lock in a 6.25% uh, coupon on a, on a bond. must have been quite a few years ago when they thought that was a good thing to do. But they've, uh, as you say, bitten the bullet. And I guess the other thing that's mentioned there is, I mean, if you're in the flexible investment sector, you know, asset allocation is really the main thing that you're paying for, is it not? I mean, you're paying somebody to actually decide which, uh, how much money to commit to which asset category. So uh, if you're not performing very well, that's... Uh, in a sense, sort of undermining the point of the whole uh, objective of the trust, is it not? That's certainly true, and it's a, it's a very key aspect. It's about getting the right blend uh, of 
underlying asset classes to give you the kind of return profile that you're seeking. I think the other aspect as well, uh, and this is one of the questions that a number of investment trusts have in this space, is it's not just about the NAV performance or even if you can maintain the dividend, it's that the share price is so important. So if you actually look at the, the performance of, the, of this particular investment trust in NAV terms, it's by no, no means a disaster. You know, since um, Aberdeen or Aberdeen Standard Investments now appointed three, three and a half years ago, uh, the NAV progress has, has been uh, reasonable. But it's that share price that's really, really caught them out. It's that derating. And when you're trying to generate single digit, even high single digit returns, if you get the share price uh, volatility wrong, or if it goes against you, then then it suddenly makes the investment look a lot less appealing. Right. So then, this is, as you say, the fundamentally the uh, the board's responsibility to uh, make sure that the investment manager is actually delivering something which is competitive in the market. And obviously, clearly, this hasn't been competitive. Uh, what's been the market reaction to that? Has there been any any move in the in the discount or anything in 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 response to this news? Or is it going to take time for the market to see how this new approach will work out? Yeah, I think it's still relatively early days. I think the market's digesting this a little bit. What does it mean? One of the points that they made that by repaying uh, a large portion of the debenture, which to be fair, that will happen in a week or two's time, it uh, gives them more scope to pursue share buybacks. And actually, this investment trust does have a 5% discount target subject to normal market conditions and a few other conditions as well. Now, clearly, it hasn't been able to adhere to that. But one theory would be that if you don't have this debt burden, because clearly if you buy back shares, then you run the risk of increasing your gearing level, that, that quite possibly that will give the board more flexibility to pursue, you know, step up their buyback policy. But we'll we'll see how that plays out. I can see the logic behind that uh, line of thought, certainly. That will be interesting to watch. Uh, let's just pick up on a couple of other things which are so ongoing corporate activity. Bearing Emerging Europe, BEE, uh, we mentioned that earlier because it managed to squeak through a, a vote on its future, but it's, the board has now come back and actually said what they're proposing to do uh, now that they are going to continue in existence. What have they said they're going to do? So they've um, put proposals on the table to adopt an EMEA uh, investment policy. Uh, and just to be clear, that's uh, effectively widening their investment policy to look at emerging markets in Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Uh, at the moment, as the name would suggest, it's focused on emerging Europe, which in reality means uh, a very large chunk in Russia. Over 70% of the portfolio uh, is invested in Russia and two other countries, Poland and Turkey, represent an additional 20%. So it's really three countries that it's very focused on. So they're going to broaden it out a little bit. They're also going to look to reduce the fee. Uh, fee will reduce by about five basis points or so. Matthias Silla will continue as the manager. He's been involved in this investment trust since 2008. And what they're also saying is that they're going to put a new discount and performance-based tender offer on the table, and that will run for five years to the end of September in 2025. And basically, if over that period the, the, the discount average is greater than a 12%, or the investment trust fails to outperform by more than 50 basis points on a per annum basis, then they will put uh, a tender offer to shareholders. Now, their largest shareholder, an outfit called City of London Investment Management, not to be confused with City of London Investment Trust, they have been supportive of these measures and they own 26% uh, of the shares. So um, quite a key shareholder to get on side. Um, so it will be different. We have not got an investment trust that specialises on EMEA at the moment. Uh, so it would certainly differentiate itself from its uh, peers. As I recall, there were two or three trusts that operated in emerging Europe, and that was all about the time, or maybe it was predated the time when the uh, the EU was expanded, the membership of the EU was expanded, and there was interest in emerging Europe as a potential investment thing. But that, of course, has passed, and with the uh, new mandate for this particular trust, that means that the emerging markets Europe will disappear, because I think it was the only trust in that sector. Well, a couple of points to follow on from that. First of all, I know, Simon, that you are a member of the a uh, very important statistics committee of the AIC, the industry body. I won't characterise that as a, as a meeting of the nerds. It's a meeting of the very distinguished statisticians and research analysts around the community. When trusts migrate from one uh, sector to another, how do you decide where it actually ends up? What's the sort of logic? What, what are the things you look at? It's a very good point, and it's obviously subject to discussion, and we look at precedent, and we look at what the investment trust in question where they think they should belong, because obviously that's a very important 
uh, consideration as well. I think what we try to do is to allow apples to be compared with apples, if at all possible, and we try to avoid having investment trusts in a, in a peer group on their own, because clearly that's not very good for comparative purposes. Uh, we also have an eye to their open-ended cousins, uh, because obviously one of the things that uh, people do is compare investment trusts to open-ended funds, and we try to uh, allow that to happen at a subsector basis as well. Uh, in the case of bearing EMEA opportunities, uh, as this uh, investment trust is likely to be renamed, it remains to be seen. I mean, my, my own personal opinion was it would make sense for it to, to sit in the emerging markets global uh, subsector, uh, although clearly it'd be very different from um, funds such as the JP Morgan Emerging Markets Fund or Templeton Emerging Markets. There is precedent for having a number of investment trusts outside of the, the kind of the largest emerging market countries. So I'm thinking of funds such as BlackRock Frontiers or Aberdeen also have a frontier market fund as well. So I would have personally thought it makes sense to, to sit there. But uh, no doubt we'll have a, a vigorous discussion on the matter at the, uh, the next meeting. Second thing that arises out of that, and last week I mentioned in the podcast that we were interested in people who wanted to send in questions and ask us about different aspects of the uh, investment trust world. So let's just briefly take time out. We had a request to help explain a little bit more about how tender offers work. Let's have a go at that. And let's say, first of all, well, what is a tender offer? And secondly, how generally are they organised? So tender offers can vary in nature. I think it's probably best to think of it as a company or an investment trust in this case, returning a sum of capital to its shareholders, usually through buying shares in the investment trust world at a fixed discount to NAV. There are variations on this theme. Not all tenders are structured in the same way, but it can be used for different purposes. It's often a case that an investment trust has perhaps seen its discount widen out to the point where really a buyback program is insufficient to kind of mop up the excess uh, supply of shares. So it might be the case that an investment trust would look to hold a, a tender offer. And let's just say for the sake of argument, it might be up to 25% of the share capital. And then all shareholders have the ability to tender their shares uh, on the knowledge that the tender price will be at a particular discount to the NAV. So it's a relatively efficient and certainly well-trodden route to return capital to shareholders. As I said, it can be used in a slightly different way. We, we heard about the proposal from the bearing fund that their tender offer would be subject to a period of underperformance or, or wide discount. And you do see a number of instances like that as well. So in that last case, this might be an alternative to say we're going to have a continuation vote after so many years. Well, what we're saying instead is something not quite as drastic as that. We're just saying that we are going to invite shareholders who want to get out at that point uh, to get out at something which is close to NAV. So they're tendering their shares, they're offering or they might be able to offer their shares back to the investment trust effectively at a certain price, as you say. How is the price set? I mean, is it always at a discount? And presumably there's some costs involved, so it has to take account of that, does it? Or what's the mechanics for actually working out the, the price of the tender offer and also the amount that is going to be uh, up for tender? Yes, I mean, the amount that's up for tender can vary hugely. I mean, we have seen instances where tenders have been unlimited, particularly where Perhaps an investment trust has, has found itself in a spot of bother. And we've said, uh, I'm just trying to think of a good example. So something like Standard Life UK Smaller Companies, Harry Nimmo's investment trust, many, many years ago had an unlimited tender offer, but stated if it fell below a certain size, then it would probably look to give up the, the ghost. And in that particular instance, it didn't fall below a certain size, it turned, not by a huge margin, and actually subsequently pushed on and been one of the best performing uh, UK Smaller Cap investment trusts. But it's it's effectively it's it's a liquidity event. You're right. There are costs involved. There are some fixed costs. Lawyers and actually brokers as well. I, I have to admit, do charge for the uh, the joys of a tender. But it's often at uh, a percentage to NAV to kind of cover for those costs as well. We we do see sometimes in the case of more illiquid uh, asset classes. I'm trying to think of an example here. So something like diverse income or actually the Miton Microcap Fund. These type of funds have an annual uh, redemption facility. It works in the same way as a tender offer. Again, it provides liquidity to shareholders. They know once a year they can get out. But if, if it's over a particular size, then there might be a kind of redemption pool created. Uh, and then when that's liquidated over a period of time, then the proceeds of that are returned to those shareholders who sought an exit. So there are various different forms uh, involved in this. 
as I say, more like than not, the tender price is at a percentage uh, to the NAV, and that should cover all the costs involved in the tender offer. And that would typically be in a sort of 1%, 2% range, that sort of thing, or would it kind of be more than that? 1% or 2% is standard. It can be more. We have seen instances where, for various reasons, boards have set the, the, the tender price at a wider level. I think boards will always take the view that ongoing shareholders should not be disadvantaged by a particular tender offer. So it's, it may be appropriate to offer liquidity uh, to those shareholders who wish to exit but it shouldn't be to the disadvantage of those ongoing shareholders. So you normally, you'll get not quite 100% of basically the value of your shares based on the net asset value at the point of which it's exercised. Okay, I understand that. That makes sense. Do they work? Is your experience would be that as a, as a way of balancing supply and demand and therefore presumably reducing a discount is, is at the back of the board's mind here. Uh, do they normally work? I mean, how effective are they as a, as a, as a mechanism for helping to reduce the discount? Again, I think the answer is it depends, to be perfectly honest. Again, there are a number of instances where investment trusts have held regular redemption offers or regular tender offers and then effectively seen themselves shrink into oblivion. Uh, I mean, you could argue that something like Atlantis Japan a number of years ago had a regular redemption facility and it's a Japanese small cap investment trust. It, It contracted to a size where it became uninvestable for a number of people. There was an Invesco UK small cap fund many years ago that had a a similar experience. So those would be examples where it didn't really work. But clearly there are those that by offering tenders or redemptions on a regular basis, it's meant that their share prices has uh, tracked the NAV. So that the discount has never widened out. And I'd think of funds such as BlackRock Frontiers, which every five years offers its shareholders a liquidity event. People can exit at around NAV less costs. Uh, and that's meant that that fund has invariably traded very well. I've mentioned the um, Diverse Income and, and Miten, uh, Microcap Fund as a similar mechanism, uh, and they've been hugely successful. BlackRock Greater Europe is another example that is at the discretion of the board but can hold semi-annual tender offers. That's traded uh, at a premium to its peer group, if, if not necessarily a premium to its NAV. So the picture is, is mixed. I think to take a step back, if you have to consider a tender offer, it's invariably because there's an oversupply of your shares. But why is there an oversupply of the shares? It may be that the the asset class is out of favour. It may be that your manager has actually been doing a poor job and been underperforming. And maybe that's the thing you should be tackling rather than just putting a tender off on the table. So, but a final question just for for elucidation here. If I'm a shareholder and by misfortune invest in one of these trusts, which is trading at a discount and has decided to make a tender offer, and it's limited, say it's limited to a percentage of the uh, issued share capital. And suppose I put in a tender offer, but um, more people put in for the uh, the shares that are available in the tender offer than uh, than the limit. What happens then? Do I get sort of pro rata or does the board have another think? What happens there? So more often than not, and the usual response would be, if it's a 25% tender offer, say, then that is the basic entitlement. So if you tender all your shares you're entitled to that 25% basic entitlement. Thereafter, there is, as you say, there's a kind of pro rata element, a kind of mix and match. So if um, other shareholders are, are quite happy to you know, stay long-term shareholders, they're not too bothered about tendering, then you might be able to get a full exit. Conversely, if every single shareholder puts in tenders their shares, then you're only going to get the 25%. And then probably the board needs to rethink a little bit as well, I suspect. Well, in that case, the board should certainly get the message. Yes, I agree. If, everybody, if 100% of the shareholders tender for a 25% tender offer, that would suggest that they are not uh, going to survive very long. Talking about survival, we'll move on to our old friend Gabelli Value Plus. I, we're getting near to the last time we probably have to talk about this trust, but uh, there's been another development in this uh, long-running saga, and the, the big, uh, as it were, rebel shareholder, which is related to the management company, Uh, has come back with its own proposals. Uh, Perhaps you can tell us what they are and then we can talk about whether or not you think they have any merit and whether they'll actually succeed or not. Well, as we've discussed before, there's been an awful lot of letters written with regard to Gabelli Value Plus. The latest is a letter that's been received by the board from Associated Capital Group. And this is the largest shareholder, just owning over 27% of the shares in issue and uh, is connected to the investment manager. And they have requisitioned a general meeting and they put three proposals on the table. Firstly, they want a, an active buyback program which uh, would target a 10% discount. In addition to that, they've proposed a, a distribution of 6% per annum uh, of the NAV. So in other words, that would be through the form of a dividend. 
and also a reduction in the management fee to 50 basis points of NEV per annum. Now, what they've said is if these proposals are passed, they would not vote against the fund's subsequent liquidation if the majority of shareholders vote against continuation of the AGM in July 2022. So, you know, that's 18 months, two years down the track. So basically, I think that the premise is you support our proposals and we'll have another two years go at this. And if at that stage the fund were to fail its continuation vote again, bearing in mind it's already failed it once, it failed it earlier this year, then they would step back and they would not block a liquidation proposal, which they can. Being a 27% shareholder, they can block it at the moment. So I guess that is a sort of moving towards a resolution. I guess, as you say, from the point of view of the Associated Capital Group, as you say, if their proposals are accepted, they will extend the life of the trust by a short amount of time, which will earn them a, a bit of a fee. And then there will be kind of general agreement to uh, dispose of the trust unless they can come up some really good performance and, and find some more demand in the next couple of years. So they sort of last chance saloon, I suppose you could say, uh, to see if they can get out of this. So that sort of summarises where we are. Do you think the board's going to go for that one? It, it remains to be seen. I mean, I think, as we know, because a number of letters have been written, a number of the shareholders on the register, other than Associated Capital Group, have made their feelings very clear on this. This is a highly unusual situation. I mean, for an investment trust to fail its continuation vote, and yet that liquidation process be blocked by its larger shareholder connected to the investment manager. I, could, I cannot think of a, a similar situation over the past 20 years. So I suspect there is a lot of ill will amongst the other shareholders. Uh, and I suspect the board will be in discussions in, in terms of how to play it. This is a standoff at the moment. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see the board's next step. Well, there we are going to hear more from this particular quarter, I, I'm sure. Could drag on for some time. Let's move on then quickly to JP Morgan European Growth and Income. It is a sort of a, a two-tier trust, if I can put it that way, uh, which we've talked about quite a lot in the past. Uh, there's been another announcement from them this week. Perhaps you could fill us in on that. Yes, yeah, so JP Morgan European announced that their long-standing co-manager, Stephen Macklow-Smith, he's been involved in this investment trust since 1997, he's actually going to retire from JP Morgan Asset Management at the end of this year, at the end of 2020. So it's fair to say, actually, we've seen a few retirements this year across the industry. Matthew Dobbs from, from Schroeder's, uh, responsible for two of their Asian funds. And I think we, last week we talked about Robert Siddles from Jubity US Smaller Company. So I do wonder if it's a little bit of a trend seeing various fund managers retire. But on the JP Morgan European front, um, they're going to shuffle the deck a little bit. Quite a few fund managers are, are already involved in this one. A chap called Michael Barakos and Tom Buckingham. They will continue to manage the uh, income portfolio. And they'll be joined by a chap called Matt Jones. Alexander Fitzalan Howard, who has been involved in the income leg, he is going to move across to the, the growth leg and he'll be alongside another two managers, uh, Zena Shuba, I've undoubtedly pronounced that incorrectly, and Tim Lewis. So effectively, you've got six fund managers involved in this particular investment trust. Two share classes, six managers. It's fair to say this is uh, perhaps an extreme example, but of J.P. Morgan's uh, approach. It's a very big company, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. They have a whole team of uh, analysts and uh, fund managers uh, all around the world, uh, and they tend to sort of pull in research or resource from all around the world. So this would be perhaps an example taken a little bit extreme. But it's. Uh, uh, do you think that having a kind of whole roster of people like this is that uh, does that inspire confidence or not? Well, it will remain to be seen. I mean, this is a slightly unusual situation because obviously you've got the two share classes um, and two distinct portfolios. So that is kind of a little bit unusual. I think one of the trends that we have seen in recent years for investment trusts is this idea of moving away just having one named manager. Uh, and increasingly we're seeing uh, two managers. It might be a, a kind of a lead and a, and a deputy or it might be two co. So that has become increasingly common, actually. And I think it is important, you know, key man risk or key person risk, maybe a bit more politically correct, is a consideration. And we talked a little bit about that with Robert Siddles on the Jupiter US Smaller Companies Fund last week. So to have two managers uh, responsible for a portfolio is, is certainly not unusual. Three, a little bit more so. But you're absolutely right. JP Morgan Asset Management have a huge amount of resource. And so you could argue this is a case of them flexing their muscles. And what's interesting about this one, they're, they're in the Europe sector, GP Morgan European, logically enough, are in the Europe sector. But their sort of performance has been re relatively indifferent, even though they have, uh, you know, a decent yield. And we've talked before about their kind of enhanced distribution uh, policy across JP Morgan is uh, three or four of their trusts. 
But their performance has been relatively poor, and uh, their discount of the, both these classes of share are the widest in the sector, uh, despite having a, a, a strong dividend yield. So what do you think the story? There's obviously some disappointment then around around the performance, I imagine. I mean, the, the performance has been disappointing. There's no two ways about it. In fact, I think the chairman made note of that in the last set of results that they had only a few weeks ago and, and said that they were talking to JP Morgan and looking to address that. Uh, now, I, I think it'd be wrong to link Stephen Macklow Smith's retirement with that necessarily. I mean, he's a long-standing manager, been involved, as I said, for, for 23 years with this investment trust, had a long investment career. But uh, yes, I think there's a couple of things going on there. I think with the income portfolio, it has got a very clear value style. And as discussed before, that has been a very tough path to follow this year. On the growth side, the long-term performance record has not been particularly bad. But yes, this year it has struggled a little bit more as well, despite despite the obvious growth bias. So um, I think JP Morgan will be aware as a house. And I think certainly the board have from their comments um, that you know there's work to be done on this one to, to sharpen performance up. Let's move on then. There's only one fundraising this week. We haven't heard uh, from our friends at Hypnosis this week, which is uh, obviously a big disappointment to us all. But let's move on and talk about a fundraising which uh, was finished uh, last week. We'll just quickly catch up with that and mention it again, which was the Triple Point Social Housing REIT, codenamed Soho. Just tell us what happened there with the, with the placing that they were engaged in. So they raised £55 million for a placing of just short of 52 million new shares at a price of 106p per share. Um, they had been looking to raise £70 million, so it was a little bit less than what they, they'd hoped, but still a pretty decent size. That takes the, the fund's market cap up to £435 million. So it's getting to a, a relatively respectable size now. And just to remind people, they invest in the supported housing sector so quite a, a, an important area and a growing area of interest within the investment company sector uh, and yielding just under 5%. So this follows obviously for Triple Point, the IPO of Triple Point Energy Efficiency Infrastructure only a week or two earlier when they raised £100 million. I think for another time we might talk about the difference of how they structured this particular offer, but I think it's a bit technical for this week, so I think we'll move on from there. Let's talk next about some uh, results. The first on the list is the Mercantile Investment Trust, a well-known Investment Trust, MRC, uh, they've just produced some interim results. Uh, what's the story there? So they have their interim results out to uh, the end of July. So that's the six-month period to the 31st of July. Uh, in that time, their NAV total return was down 22%, and that compared with a fall of 23% for their benchmark. Uh, the share price total return was actually down 28 29%, so a little bit worse in share price terms as their discount widened. Um, a couple of things of interest, um, their revenue per share was 1.4p per share, down 68% year on year, uh, which is quite a severe fall. And it, and it tells you exactly what's been going on in the, the UK marketplace, uh, certainly for Mercantile. Um, however, the board have confirmed that their current intention is to at least maintain last year's total dividend of 6.6p. So I think they pay a quarterly dividend. I think they're on track to meet that. I think the other interesting point here is that the managers, so it's Guy Anderson and Anthony Lynch, uh, are actually quite optimistic uh, about the, the outlook. The gearing for this investment trust currently stands at 10% uh, of net assets. Uh, and that reflects the fact that they believe that valuations are, are quite depressed levels. And yet they're seeing signs of economic recovery. And in terms of their portfolio companies, um, there are substantial improvements coming through. So they paint a, a relatively rosy picture. Not too many investment managers are necessarily optimistic at the moment, but this pair certainly are. And uh, how has the trust been trading? I mean, how has the market reacted to that or to the general performance over time? Is it popular or unpopular at the moment? No, it's, I mean, it's an interesting story, actually, because last year they had a tremendous year. 2019 was a very, very strong year uh, and saw their discount kind of march all the way into not too far off NAV. In fact, I think they were on a small premium for a period of time. So we've seen that reverse to an extent this year, but still trading uh, on a discount of around about 5-6%, uh, which for a mid and small cap UK specialist is actually a relatively respectable discount in this day and age. So I think the advantage that the mercantile has over some of its peers is the fact that um, it has developed a strong track record under this particular management team. Um, and also the fact that it's a pretty decent size, it's a £1.6 billion uh, investment trust and it invests in the UK market but excludes the the FTSE 100 essentially so it really does provide exposure to the full range of mid and small cap companies. I should mention that perhaps also is a, is another JP Morgan uh, asset management trust it does not in the name but it is one of theirs 
Let's quickly do some other results, and then we can talk about a couple of trusts you've been talking to. Let's just quickly uh, cover Aberdeen New Tie, as its name suggests, is a single country investment trust specialising in Thailand. So uh, it had its interim results out to the end of August. Uh, in that time, it had an NAV total return down 6%, and that compared with a decline of 3% for the uh, the benchmark index there. In share price terms, it did a little bit better, actually. It was only down 1%. But in terms of the, the what was driving the performance, they're quite exposed to the financial sector, energy and resources stocks, and, and that uh, probably wasn't the place to be in the first half of uh, their financial year. Though they picked up in terms of uh, some of the exposure to pharmaceutical companies, unsurprisingly, and also semiconductor companies also did well for them uh, in that six-month period. One which has a slightly better relative performance, I think, is BlackRock Greater Europe, BRGE. They've had some annual results, I think. That's right. They had annual results uh, again to the end of August um, and a very decent set of results. Actually, their NAV total return was up nearly 17% in that 12-month period. And that compared with a a rise of 1% for their benchmark index. It's all about the stock selection here. Um, Stefan Gries and Sam Vecht, uh, the investment team here, and uh, actually under their uh, stewardship, this this investment trust is actually developing a very strong track record. They're quite happy to back their winners. Um, they haven't made too many changes, though they did invest in some more cyclical businesses, particularly when the, when the market took its dip in, in March and April. So they added a few names to the list. But it is trading on one of the uh, narrow discounts in that European space, probably about uh, a 2% discount or so at the moment. But to our conversation earlier, to refer back to that, it is one of these uh, investment trusts with a, a semi-annual discretionary tender offer. And it has been used in the past, not recently. But if the board were ever to feel that the discount was widening out, then they would put that on the table and provide liquidity for shareholders to exit. Why out of interest is it called the BlackRock Greater Europe Investment Trust? Is its focus of investment different from some others in the in the sector? Absolutely right. So, And Sam Vecht uh, is the clue in this. So uh, Sam, as you may know, he is involved in the BlackRock Frontiers Investment Trust. He also, going back to Emerging Europe, he ran a, an investment trust in that space for BlackRock going back a number of years. And he is responsible for BlackRock Greater Europe's exposure to uh, emerging Europe. So they do have uh, investments in Russia, Poland uh, and countries of that ilk. Right. So if you're interested in that area, that's one way to uh, to get some exposure to it. Let's move on then to, we mentioned already Jupiter US smaller companies because the, uh, the manager, Robert Siddles, has announced he's going to be retiring. Uh, and we speculated when we spoke about that before, about what might happen to the trust uh, following his departure. They, as it happened, produced some annual results uh, this week. So what have they been saying about that and about about the future of the trust? Yeah, so they had their annual results out to the end of June. Uh, in that period, they had an NAV total return down 3%, and that compared with a fall of 4% for their benchmark index, the Russell 2000 total return index. Um, in share price terms, um, unfortunately, performance is a little worse, down nearly 10%, and that followed a derating and the suspension of the investment trust 10% discount target. But you're absolutely right. The big news here is about the fund manager's retirement in April next year. The board are still reviewing their options. They're going to make a a further announcement in in due course. Uh, Interesting enough, this this investment trust does have a continuation vote at its AGM in December. But that's a kind of periodic continuation vote that hasn't been triggered by anything in particular. Um, And actually, we're seeing the the fund's chairman. uh, He's announced he will stand down at the 2021 AGM. Uh, and he's been the chairman since 1998. So in investment trust terms, that's a very long-standing chairman. Right. So what can one make of this sort of combination of things that they're saying? So the manager's retiring, the chairman is stepping down. They've got a continuation vote. So presumably they'll be hoping to pass the continuation vote. And so presumably if they're going to uh, make announcements about the future, uh, what the options are, they're going to have to come up with something by that AGM. Otherwise, people wouldn't know what they're voting for. Uh, and I mean, that would be the logical conclusion. And certainly in terms of the results that, you know, they made it clear that I think they are looking to kind of make an announcement sooner rather than later and just let people know uh, where they stand. Right. Perhaps you could just explain briefly why they would have suspended the discount target 10%, allowing the discount to widen effectively. Uh, why would they do that at this point? Is that because there is a big uh, potential change coming up in the future? Is that uh, Would that be the reason? The 10% discount target was suspended, I think, earlier in the year when we saw that period of, of market volatility. Um, and to be fair, a number of investment trusts stood back from their discount targets or buyback programs at that stage. To be honest, when, when markets are incredibly volatile and particularly where 
you have portfolios of assets, um, you know, in this case, obviously, in the US market, um, it does become quite difficult to police precise discount targets. So to take a step back in market conditions that were clearly not normal at that stage, I don't think was entirely unreasonable. And there's a number that did exactly that. And thereafter, probably events have overtaken them a, a little bit. But I think the clear intention is to kind of uh, keep an eye on that discount. It's currently probably around about 12% or so at the moment. Uh, and I'm sure that that's something that they do keep a, a close eye on. So I guess their argument would be that, uh, OK, it has slipped for the time being, even though markets have stabilised and indeed done quite well this year. And they are just waiting to see what the outcome of this vote is and then they can decide what to do. I guess that might be part of their thinking. Let's see. We'll have to track that one. Anything we can say about Schroeder Japan Growth, SJG? Yes, they have their annual results out to the end of July. Again, a tricky period of, of performance. MAV total return down 12%, uh, and that underperformed the benchmark return, which was down 6%. There are various reasons why they did underperform. Uh, currency movements were against them, COVID-19 clearly. Uh, gearing didn't help in this period, and also the fund manager's value bias. Um, the chairman noted that this was a disappointing set of results and also, this was the second year of underperformance. So I think they are very focused on that. And in fact, what they've done is on the table, they've put a tender offer of up to 25% of the share capital if the NAV does not outperform the benchmark by at least 2% per annum over a four-year period to uh, the end of July 2024. So we're seeing another case of tenders being implemented. Now, we have had a number of results from the property sector. We've been following that one quite closely this year. And uh, we know there's been kind of divergent experience amongst uh, the members of this particular sector. If they're in the right part of the commercial property space, they've done uh, pretty well. If they're not in the right part of the commercial property space, they've been uh, essentially their shares have been hammered. So what uh, what can you tell us about uh, quickly run through some of the ones that have reported this week? Again, the normal story, I think a rather mixed story. Yeah, I think that's right. Just to take a, a few at random, we've got quite a few have had their results. So we saw Q3 updates from BMO Commercial Property. So this is NAV valuation as at the end of September. And in that three-month period, uh, from the end of June to the end of September, their NAV was down 3%. But actually, arguably, what's kind of more interesting was what's happening at the underlying level. And retail and leisure assets, perhaps unsurprisingly, continue to be marked down. So they've got some really interesting prime property, uh, particularly in the West End of London. And we're seeing some quite big valuation reductions for those assets. So St. Christopher's Place, probably their flagship property on the balance sheet, was down 6% in that three-month period. Another property, Conduit Street, uh, was down nearly 17%. So that's something very much to keep an eye on. These are quite highly valued properties, but clearly um, the underlying picture, in, particularly in terms of rent generation, is, is difficult uh, at the moment. BMO Real Estate Investments, so um, commercial properties kind of sister fund, their NAV was down less part of 2% in that three-month period. Again, a little bit of a mixed picture. They're, they're paying their quarterly dividends out at 50% of their pre-pandemic rate. Uh, but in terms of their rent collection, they were up to about 77% of rent build had been collected, certainly for the, the, the kind of more recent rent collection date. And that compared with 90% for the same period last year. And that's quite a consistent picture, actually, that we're seeing people kind of around between 80 and 90%, clearly depending on the type of property assets that they have in their portfolios. And in terms of the, the market for these things, I mean, I've I noticed that this week some of the discounts widened a little bit. And there are obviously some substantial discounts still in the sector. The BMO one you mentioned, I think, has got the worst. It's nearly 50% discount at the moment. And that's one of the big ones in the sector. So what do you think is happening? I mean, people are still obviously very negative on the on the sector, but are there any signs of change in what investors are, how they're regarding these uh, commercial property trusts? Yes, I think there's a couple of things going on there. I think I think people are very aware of the fact that they are sensitive to uh, the economy, the general economy, uh, particularly the, the commercial property ones that you mentioned there. So where there are doubts over what's going to happen to UK PLC on the next six to 12 months, I think people are maybe being a little bit hesitant. I think the other aspect is um, the, the income, their ability to generate attractive dividends. The majority of the commercial property funds or the mainstream ones have um, reduced their dividends or some have suspended their dividends. I think one of the few exceptions to that is AEW UK REIT, which is probably one of the smaller ones. They've kept their dividend uh, up. They've kept it going, but they're in uh, the minority. 
So I think there's a question of when you look across these Q3 updates, we can see that rents are stabilising depending on how much exposure the underlying portfolios have to the leisure and retail sectors. That's obviously a key factor, but they appear to have stabilised. There aren't necessarily overall massive changes to the valuation of the property, that BMO commercial property example aside, but it's really what's going to be the impact of the second wave of coronavirus on the valuation of these things and how difficult is it going to be? So I think they're probably the key questions. I mean, there are always interesting stories in the property space. I mean, Empiric Student Property, I think that's probably one that we talked about before. They provided a trading update this week and they noted that, you know, all their buildings are remained open. Most students have now arrived for the 2020-21 academic year, but their occupancy stands at 70%. Uh, currently versus 94% for the same time last year and the 70% includes cancellations and 10% uh, of students that still have to check in so you know very difficult area clearly within the property market that particular uh, investment company has not reinstated its dividend but it's keeping its policy under review. Okay, so we'll continue to track that. As you say, it's uh, it obviously is sensitive to the economy in particular and to when we find out exactly how long these new wave of restrictions are going to last and how punitive they turn out to be. I can't help passing on to uh, a very small investor trust, which had a very interesting year, as to be said. I was looking at these performance of different trusts earlier this week, and that is something called Golden Prospect Precious Metals, GPM, which invests in the, or as it says, in precious metals, including gold and so on. What's been happening there? It is a very small trust, so we're not going to spend all the time on it, but uh, some some investors might be interested in it. It's been a rather roller coaster year for them, I think. Well, absolutely. It had its interim results out to the end of June, uh, and actually the NAV was up 54% in that six-month period. The share price even better, up 64%. So not too many investment companies or investment trusts uh, performed quite so well in the first half of this year. Clearly, the gold price was a massive factor, and what was <laughs> what was going on in terms of the monetary policy response uh, to the pandemic. Um, and actually, interestingly enough, the fund used the sell-off in late March to increase exposure to precious metal equities, and they got involved in the IPO of Emerald Resources as well. So certainly a, a very strong period for this particular investment trust. Let's mention news from a much larger, well-known investment trust. This is the Alliance Trust. ATST, been going for a very, very long time, almost as long as uh, foreign and colonial. What's been the story there? Because they changed their approach to investing a few years ago, and I think they've had an update this week. That's right. So this investment trust has pursued a multi-manager approach now for uh, several years, and they've announced a change to their roster. So Lomas Capital Management has been appointed as a a stock picker, uh, and they uh, will replace an outfit called First Pacific Advisors. So the story there is that with First Pacific Advisors, the, the investment team actually left to join uh, Polar Capital, and that triggered a, a change in um, manager effectively. So Lomas joins the lineup. Uh, they've got nine underlying managers, and Lomas Capital Management will run uh, a 10 to 20 stock uh, global equity portfolio, uh, and they'll be allocated about 9% of Lions Trust's portfolio. I mean, one of the interesting things about that change that Alliance Trust made, because it used to be, a, I think, a self-managed trust or had its own management team, is that uh, they've gone to this multi-manager approach. And, and as part of that approach, uh, the board uses consultants to help them choose the managers of the various components of the portfolio. And as a result of that, you see some names in there which you would have no uh, access to otherwise unless you're investing through Alliance Trust, because there aren't that many multi-manager approaches in the trust sector. And so Lomas Capital Management, I don't know them. I don't know whether they're good or bad, but obviously they've got some kind of record that's attracted the attention of the Alliance Trust Board and its advisors. So I think you could say that it allows a different kind of approach and uh, obviously it stands or falls by the results. No, I think that's absolutely right. If you look at the nine managers that are involved at the moment, you'll, you'll recognise names such as Jupiter and River and Mercantile, but the, the majority are, I would say, slightly less well-known or probably some very uh, unknown uh, in terms of the UK marketplace. So that's the advantage. Willis Towers Watson are a, a global outfit and have a tremendous reach across the investment management world. And their brief is really to source the best in class. And so that's what they're hoping to deliver in terms of Alliance Trust. We spent a bit of time talking about tenders, which taken up a bit of this week's podcast. But I think we've just got time to talk about a couple of other trusts that you've been talking to, uh, had conversations with the managers in the last few days. Well, quite a few, in fact. You've been hard at work, Simon. I'm glad to hear that. Let's talk about um, Bailey Gifford Japan, a well-known trust, probably the best known in that sector, a long-standing trust, been going for many years, 
and we've mentioned it before. What did you glean from your conversations with them? So a very good update, uh, as always, with the team at uh, Bailey Gifford Japan. Matthew Brett has been managing that particular investment trust now for a few years. And this, as you rightly say, Japanese equities, but with a mid and small cap bias, in common with uh, many of the, the Bailey Gifford, uh, if not all the Bailey Gifford funds, it has a very much a focus on growth, but different flavours of growth, it's fair to say. So secular growth, more growth stalwarts, special sits, and even some cyclical growth names as well. So a good period for this particular investment trust. There was a lot of discussion about SoftBank, uh, which is a, a company, a Japanese company that's always in the news. And there's always a slight uh, controversial element to it. So Matthew was very good discussing his view on SoftBank, which is the largest holding in the portfolio at the moment. Um, but when we also talked about the growth opportunities at the moment, it's not just all kind of highly rated tech companies. I mean, one of the ideas that they're pursuing at the moment is a company called Colby. I, hopefully I pronounced that correctly. But effectively, it uh, produces potato snacks, uh, which apparently are very tasty. And uh, he believes that's a, a company that's set to grow. So not all tech, I think it's fair to say. One of the things that struck me about your notes on that, uh, which I found quite amusing, was you'll be aware that a number of investment managers have been uh, pushing the case for Japan on the grounds that uh, you know Japanese companies historically have not put shareholder value very high on the list. And in particular, they tend to have very conservative balance sheets, uh, very little debt, which sort of holds back the performance of the companies because they're too conservative. Well, I, I, I noticed that uh, Matthew Brett said that the, uh, the balance sheets, the strength of them has now become an asset rather than a potential opportunity. So, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a time for everything, I suppose one could say. But I mean, there are other investment trusts that are not uh, operating in the Japanese sector who very much made a, a play for the fact that they're looking to see improved, what they call improved corporate governance and more attention to shareholder value and balance sheet management than in this particular case. That's right. So um, there are two that kind of really specialise in that. The AVI Japan Opportunity Investment Trust was launched a few years ago. That's very much uh, they're looking for their kind of improvement in corporate governance. And also the first IPO this year and for a long time, the only IPO this year, Nippon active value, again, mining that particular seam as well. But it is a theme that, that comes out uh, with most Japanese fund managers, this idea of um, corporate governance and balance sheet strength. It's definitely a, a talking point within the Japanese market. Yes, and I think I noticed from there that the average cut in the Japanese dividends is about 5 to 10%, whereas it's been, uh, I think, significantly higher in the UK. And we can uh, that's obviously been one of the reasons why the UK has been derated or become less popular. Let's talk about, though, a, a trust which does operate in the UK, or at least is in a sector in the UK, and which has been doing a lot better, and that is something called Odyssean Investment Trust. That's a, quite a specialist uh, trust with a specifically uh, generic kind of approach, which is different from your average uh, equity investment trust. So uh, what's the story there? So Odyssean Investment Trust, it's uh, managed by uh, a chap called Stuart Widdison. Very different take on, on the UK marketplace. So basically, uh, UK smaller companies, a very concentrated portfolio between 15 and 20. It's probably up to nearer 20 at the moment. But he looks to invest in companies where he believes that uh, have substantial intrinsic value. It, effectively, the approach is that they take a, a kind of private equity mindset. It's all publicly listed companies in the portfolio, but they use that kind of private equity mindset when they come to assess and value companies. Um, and so they like high quality companies but offer quite attractive value terms, um, but they're in a position to, he calls it self-help, so take measures that, that can improve their lot. So it's certainly not a kind of growth momentum play. It's not a kind of beta call on the, on the UK marketplace or the UK small cap space, but it's actually, it's all about the stock names. Uh, and since the launch of this investment company, it's, it's been uh, one of the best performers in the UK small cap space. It's up 13% at a time when the indexes have fallen 8%. And actually hearing Stuart talk about the opportunities that he believes exist in the UK small cap space at the moment um, is very interesting. Clearly, value is, as a number of managers will testify, is high. He's increased exposure to a number of cyclical companies that he believes are attractively valued. Normally, he'll, he'll only invest in about four or five companies a year. This year, it's double that. He's actually invested in eight uh, companies this year. And I think that reflects the opportunity and the valuations that he's seen at the moment. Yes, it is an interesting one. And uh, he used to run a, another investment trust, which he's moved on to run his own investment trust, release, he has a big stake in it. And it's a concentrated portfolio, as you say. And the other interesting thing I, I noticed was that although it's uh, invests in UK-listed companies, only about 10% of its revenues come from the UK, if you look through the portfolio, which means that um, while it is in a UK uh, investment trust, it's actually quite heavily exposed to the global economy rather than the UK economy. 
That's right. Yeah, he talks about looking for global leaders. And I mean, the UK marketplace, although uh, much derided at the moment and certainly unloved, um, it, it does contain a number of very strong companies, very well respected around the world. Clearly, we're under a bit of a, a cloud, maybe several clouds at the moment. But I think there's a good case to be made that uh, the UK marketplace will, will have its day again. Well, let's hope so. Both those two trusts we talked about, Bellinger for Japan and uh, Odyssean, they have very different discounts, but they're both trading below their kind of average uh, discounts at the moment. Or, am I right about that? So you might think on the face of it, that looks like they might be interesting things to look at. So in the last 12 months, Odyssean has averaged a 5% discount. It's probably nearer to about a 7% now. So that's you know certainly tighter than we've seen across the UK small cap marketplace. But then that arguably will reflect its uh, its performance record and the fact that it's it's doing something a little bit different. Bailey Gifford Japan, invariably that one's traded at a premium quite often during its life. Um, it's certainly been a favourite. Um, it's probably trading around NAV at the moment, so it probably averaged about 3% discount or so over the last 12 months. Okay, and then finally, the last trust we're going to mention, another Bailey Gifford Trust, which uh, we have to mention because of its rather spectacular performance this year. We talked about Golden Prospect doing well, but uh, that's Pacific Horizon, PHI, which has had a, it can only be described as a storming year, I think. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the best performing investment trusts this year. I mean, the share price is up over 90%. The NAV nearly as impressive, probably up nearer to, to 70%. But, you know, compared with its Asian benchmark, which is up 10, 13%, it's it's a very, very impressive return. A number of interesting stocks in the portfolio have, have driven that. I mean, Ewan Markson Brown, who has been the manager of that investment trust for a few years, talks about growth squared, the idea of backing the fastest growing companies in the fastest growing region of the world. And I mean, this this uh, investment trust does have a bit of a kind of mid cap bias, probably about 40 percent or a little bit more than that. It's actually got a market cap below five billion dollars. So it kind of puts it in the mid cap bias uh, area. But, you know, just talking about life in general, what he's seen in the region uh, across Asia this year um, and all the things that have happened, his take is that the possibility that this is the Asian decade has only increased so far this year. Now, arguably, he would say that, wouldn't he? But um, certainly the, the performance of uh, Pacific Horizon is uh, is a powerful support to that argument. It's certainly been a, an impressive ride this year. So we've talked quite a lot about tenders, and that's taken a bit of time, so slightly longer than normal this week. So uh, thank you for sure still listening, for your patience in getting to this point. We've covered a lot of ground, but there's always so many interesting things to talk about in the investment trust sector, and that's why we do this podcast and where we look forward to um, hoping to have your company again uh, next week so thank you simon and uh, we'll look forward to that this has been a moneymakers investment trust podcast these podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels you can sign up on the moneymakers website www.money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available thank you for listening and please keep safe in these difficult times